0: Hey kids, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast you're going to love. On behalf of myself, Morgan Rector, of one of the most horrific true crime podcasts, Human Monsters, I'd like to ask you this question. Do you like to travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Fun fact, there is a morgue on every cruise ship. After all, People die everywhere. Why wouldn't they die on a cruise ship in the Bahamas? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. 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 It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and what-the-fuck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff... To Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater, each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway, and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Double Trouble Part 4, Section 1. Monty Rissell. I would like to begin this episode, which I warn you will be a heavy one, with my sincere gratitude for the amount of support you, our listeners, have shown us. We take the feedback, good or bad, to heart and use it to improve on the show. We have some diehard soldiers in our Humo Army who have been faithful followers from the beginning, and we might not always like or comment on what you post in our socials, but we want to assure you that all the hours, days, and often weeks we put into compiling well-researched episodes are because we know our followers expect only the best, and we are happy to deliver We plan to do a couple of Double Trouble episodes this year and we would like to know how you feel about them. The cases are often too thin in information for us to do the deep dive we would like to do. But the cases, as the two told today, are just too important not to tell. We truly appreciate every like, follow, subscription and especially the ratings and reviews you leave us and we also wouldn't mind maybe if you spread the word a little bit there's no better marketing tool than word of mouth in the wild wild west world of podcasting it is imperative no matter how good your content is to give five stars and tell the world about us but enough with the housekeeping, let's get on with the show. When it comes to the hundreds of crimes a person can commit, that of rape and murder must be the most terrifying for any victim, regardless of gender, age, or race. Rape has nothing to do with sexual pleasure. The act encumbers all that is rage anger, and violence, and the victim might survive the attack, but the long-term injuries and emotional scars are often life-changing. One of the reasons the Correctional Services isolates sex offenders is because they are the first to fall prey to victimization in a prison. In today's episode, we are going to cover two sexual predators. Both will never see the outside world again, for different reasons, and are not as well known as the Bundys of, or the Keepers of the World, but in my eyes, it takes one rape to qualify a person as a monster. They are not able to be rehabilitated, and once caught, should be removed from society. But that is just my opinion. Let's begin with a serial rapist, and rapist that fascinated both John Douglas and Robert's Wrestler, both FBI profiler legends. So much they just had to interview him. He was also featured in the first season of the Mind Hunter series, but still, his crimes are not that well known. Let's meet Mr. Monty Rissell. There are a couple of reasons why John Douglas and Robert Wrestler were intrigued by Monty Ralph Rissell. Where many serial killers start their killing sprees at the age of about 17 or 18 years old, Monty was arrested at that age for five murders and 12 rapes. When he was captured in May of 1977, he had just decided to quit high school. During their interviews, they discovered that he was also above average in intelligence And all his murders were committed within a mile of where he lived. He also always had a gun with him, but never used it to kill any of his victims. And despite claiming that his first murder victim was as a result of a breakup, he had been a juvenile delinquent from a very early age. There also seemed to be not much of a cooling down period, since his major crimes occurred between August of 1976 and March of 1977, when he was finally captured. Monty Russell was born the youngest of three children in Wellington, Virginia. It appears that the first seven years were relatively stable, no matter how hard I tried, I could not get research material that confirms his date of birth, and most just say 1959. When Monty was seven years old, William, Monty's father, left, and the couple separated. Three years later, the couple divorced, and it seems that with the sudden disruption and instability, Monty's behavior started to change. His father never would see his son again, and his mother started to lose interest in her children once the ring on her finger was removed. She moved her twin sons and her daughter to California. Monty begged his mother to stay with his father, but she refused. He would later tell the profiler team that he firmly believes that if he had stayed with his father, he would have become a lawyer. Monty's mother would remarry. Hank, as the family got to know him, was a military man as well as a strict disciplinarian, and Monty's mom spent a lot more time with him than with her children. When Monty was nine years old, he started to show antisocial personality tendencies by writing obscene graffiti on the walls of his school. During this time, he also purposely shot his cousin with an air rifle. Hank was so infuriated that he broke the gun and then proceeded to beat Monty with the pieces. Monty and Hank did not like each other. Monty was small in stature and would only reach five foot six in height and resented the beatings. Monty, however, did not make it easy for his stepfather and the couple finally divorced when Monty was 12 years old. He attacked and robbed his neighbor at knife point while wearing a mask. This marriage did not last long, and the family left Hank behind when he was 12 and went back to Virginia, but this seemed to just amplify his menace. A year after the move, at the age of 10 years old, he was found driving a vehicle without a license. At the age of 14 years old, he was also arrested for stealing a car, as well as the rape of his neighbor. Yes, you heard it correctly. He had hardly hit the peak of being a teenager, and his sexual deviancy was already rearing blatantly its ugly head. At the age of 14 years old, Monty was caught stealing a car. He was sent to reform school. Where he was diagnosed with multiple personality disorder, now known as anti personality identity disorder. He was also diagnosed with having trouble with adjustments. Monty would be in and out of institutions until his arrest, but what no one in charge of the youth knew was that Monty had learned to manipulate and manage to sneak out of these institutions to commit rapes and murders while he was a patient at these facilities. Sadly, neither the names nor the numbers of many victims would ever be known, and all we can do is hope that those victims managed to pick up the pieces and live happy lives, despite the assaults. Monty would claim that the reason he began to kill was because of a girl, When he was either 17 or 18 years old, he began dating a girl who was a little older than he was. She was 19 years old, and he was 17 years old, and eventually started college about four hours away from where Monty lived. But soon after arriving, Monty received a Dear John letter, which broke his heart. In between tears, beers, and a couple of joints he decided to drive the distance to her dorm. What his motive was, we don't know, but when he finally found her, he was just in time to see her kiss another man and hold his hand and realized that it wouldn't matter what he said. It was over. Monty never approached the couple. Instead, he got back in his car and drove back to his apartment in Alexandria, Once at his apartment block, he sat in his car and stewed about the breakup while drinking and getting high for hours. It was the 4th of August, 1976, at 2 p.m., and Monty, despite drowning his sorrows, still felt an incredible rage. As he sat stewing in his own pity, an attractive woman in a Ford Mustang pulled into the parking space next to him. Monty made an impulsive decision and grabbed the knife and the gun he kept in his glove box. As the unsuspecting woman was locking her car door, she felt the dull barrel of the gun against her back. Monty said, This is a stick-up, to which she replied that he must just please not hurt her. Monty told her that he wanted her money and told her to get back in the car. 26-year-old Or Marina Gabor was a sex worker, and as she got back into the car, she was sure she would control the situation. But to Monty, a woman controlling any situation was unacceptable. The man who stank of booze and weed ordered her to start driving off the I-95 interstate. She kept quiet and did what he told her. She eventually asked him what he wanted from her, and he told her that he would not hurt her as long as he can have sex with her. Orr must have been frightened, but because of the work she did, she thought she could handle the situation. She asked him what position he wanted to have sex in while pulling up her skirt. He would later tell investigators that he did not like the way this bitch was trying to control him. The fact that she tried to fake two orgasms while he aggressively raped her infuriated him even more. He finished the act, pulled up his pants, and was wondering what he was going to do next when Orr made a run for it down a ravine. Unfortunately, he was faster, and as he caught up to her, He put her in an arm lock and tried to choke her. As they rolled in the struggle down the ravine, Orr hit her head on a rock, and Monty took the opportunity to beat her head repeatedly against the rock. He would eventually strangle her with her own bra to death. He drove Orr's car back to his apartment block and left it there. She was discovered a couple of days later, and her car showed signs of a serious altercation, but they had no leads and no witnesses. To Monty, he was taking revenge on all the women of the world. He stayed under the radar for seven months after his first murder, but when he came across Ursula Miltenberger, who was 22 years old, the urge to rape overtook him. Ursula was tall, standing at five feet nine, with red hair. She was a bill collector and was in the process of training to become a manager at McDonald's. She was a graduate at Shepherds College in West Virginia, where she received her bachelor's degree in computer science. She had been given the opportunity to work on her family's dairy farm, but the big city drew her and she had greater plans for her life. On the 6th of March, 1977, she had just finished her training at McDonald's and told a co-worker that she was on her way to a party. Monty did the same thing that he did to his previous victim and forced her into her car and told her to drive. Ursula kept on asking questions. She wanted to know where they were going. She wanted to know what he was going to do with her. She wanted to know if he had a girlfriend and why did he choose her and what was his problem the questions annoyed monty who was already in an aggravated state he showed her where to stop but the moment she opened the door he knew she was going to make a run for it monty grabbed his knife and went after her he tackled her to the ground and started stabbing her in the chest he struck her in the head with a blunt object "'and bound her hands and feet. "'He was so angry that he lost control "'that he straddled her torso "'and started to stab her over and over in her torso. "'When he was out of breath and convinced she was dead, "'he left her there and drove her car to the parking lot "'of an apartment building near his home "'and walked the rest of the way home. "'Once home, he took a shower made himself something to eat, and went to bed. He still stayed with his mother, and she was completely unaware of his nocturnal habits. A horseback rider found Ursula's body the following day and immediately reported the crime scene. Once again, there were no witnesses and no evidence It was clear Ursula had not made the party, and the young woman had no enemies in any aspect of her life. The murder was completely random. Monty woke up to the news that his latest victim had been found. It evoked in him a feeling of excitement and an urgent desire to hunt again. But he knew he had to wait. In April, he targeted a woman again, using his previous M.O. by forcing her to drive to a secluded area. He forced her to undress, raped her, and was ready to kill her when she pled for her life, telling Monty her father had cancer, and if she died, he would have no one to take care of him. This plea struck a chord with Monty, whose brother was battling cancer during this time. He threatened her that he would not only kill her, but her grandfather as well, if she ever revealed what happened, and then he let her go. His next victim, when she encounters the serial killer, would not be shown such mercy. 24-year-old Jeanette McEwell was a proofreader for a printing firm and was about to enter the home-run apartment complex, not far from where Monty lived. As she approached the elevator, a man with a large knife approached her and told her that this was a stick-up. He forced her into her car and forced her to drive to an isolated forested area with the promise that he would not hurt her if she would have sex with him. Through tears, she agreed. He raped her twice and drove her to a dead-end street. Monty forced her out of the car and told her to keep her eyes in front of her. He took her to a covert near his apartment block. He told her to stop and turn around, and she immediately felt the blade enter her torso. She screamed as she realized she had been stabbed, but Monty turned her around and started stabbing her in her back. He grabbed her by the hair and started dragging her down the covert, still stabbing her. He stabbed her 24 times and would later admit that he watched as the life left her eyes. He made a feeble attempt at concealing her body, tucked the knife in his pants, and made his way home. Her badly decomposed body would not be discovered until May of 1977. Monty washed the knife he used the following morning and placed it back in the drawer amongst his mother's other knives. The next two attacks came in quick succession. He kidnapped, raped, and killed Gladys Bradley in the same manner as he did his other victims. The 24-year-old woman was a distribution clerk for the Postal Service. She happened to live in the same apartment block as Jeanette. The single mom was tired after picking up extra shifts, and as she stepped onto the elevator, He ordered her out with his knife and forced her to drive to a secluded area. Once again, he promised that no harm would come to her if they could have sex. Once he had chosen his location, he dragged her out of the car, raped her on the ground, and told her to get dressed. As she turned around, he stabbed her in the back, dragged her to the creek, and with her face in the water, continued to stab her until he was sure she was dead. Her body was discovered on the 30th of April, 1977. Once her body was discovered and the similarities between the growing numbers of victims were apparent, detectives knew they had a serial killer on their hands and that the clock was ticking. Women were frightened to leave their homes and Monty even escorted some of them for safety purposes, no doubt relishing the feeling of power he held. On the 8th of April 1977, Monty was sitting in the space between the apartment building he lived in and one of his victims with a knife in his pocket. He was looking for his next victim and he found her in 35-year-old Aletha Bird. He forced her to drive them to Fairfax, Virginia, where he raped her twice and then told her to drive them up the road. Aletha tried to negotiate with her captor telling him that if he threw the knife out the window, she would not crash the car into a tree. Monty did not hesitate and slammed the brakes with the foot from where he was sitting, and Aletha tried to make a run for it. The moment the car stopped, Monty chased her down, and she fought hard for her life, but Monty overpowered her. He stabbed her a total of 14 times and tried to conceal her body with a large log. On the 20th of April, 1977, Monty, who had been a poor student, withdrew from TCH High School, mainly to pursue victims. What he did not realize was that investigators were hot on his trail. Detective John Turner, who had been involved in the investigation of one of Monty's rape charges, just had a gut feeling that Monty was the man they needed to catch. He had no evidence or proof, but the feeling was so strong that he focused on the youth intently. He had gotten to know Monty and his mother well during the investigation, and despite solid evidence, he knew Monty was the serial killer and rapist they were looking for. For instance, the victims, as well as their abandoned vehicles, were all found within a mile radius of Monty's mother's home. Detective Turner knew this type of crime would only escalate, so he ordered his officers to put up roadblocks near the areas where the bodies were recovered. During his attacks, Monty had become sloppy. During Aletha's attack, he took her hair comb, her wallet, and keys. On the 17th of May, 1977, Monty was arrested for two rapes that happened in his building, but that were unrelated. Detective Turner took the opportunity to interview Monty, and to his surprise, Monty confessed to all his crimes. He was booked on the felony kidnapping, rape, and murder of the five women, and when his car was searched, Aletha's belongings were found in the vehicle. Monty was requested to draw a map of the different crime scenes, And where he had left the bodies. He did so under the assumption that officers would advocate for him in prison. During the hearings, Monty appeared jovial, but as his trial date in September drew nearer, his demeanor became more subdued. He came to an agreement with the prosecutors that he would plead guilty to the murders and was given an opportunity to give a statement. Instead, his lawyer stood up and declared that his client felt sincere remorse for what he had done. According to the profilers who later interviewed him, Monty never had any real remorse. On the 11th of October, as his siblings, his friends from high school, and his mother sat listening to the proceedings in the Fairfax County courtroom, Monty was given four life sentences with opportunity for parole in 20 years. Since then, he had tried to write a tell-all book about his life and crimes, claiming the money he made would go to the victims' families, but the book was never published. The nightmare was, however, not over for the families. Since 1985, Monty has come up for parole every year, which means the family members have to relive the loss of their loved ones like a never-ending nightmare. It's doubtful he will ever be granted parole. Part 2. Charlie Hatcher Welcome to Human Monsters. Part 1. Charles Crazy Charlie Hatcher Charles Ray Hatcher was the spawn of Lula and Jesse Hatcher He was born on July 16, 1929, in Mount City, Missouri. He was the youngest of four boys, so practice did not make perfect. His father was an abusive alcoholic. Outside the home, Charles was bullied at school. The humiliation was more than he could take, and he frequently lashed out at some of his classmates. Charles's sixth year of life was marked by a pivotal moment for him, a traumatic event that marked and shaped him irrevocably. One day, he and his brothers were flying kites in his neighborhood. They strung their kites with copper wire. Copper is known to be a potent conductor of electricity. Incognizant of the safety hazard they faced when flying the kites close to electrical wires, his brother Arthur's kite became ensnarled with an electrical wire, and he was electrocuted. The voltage was so strong it killed him instantly. More loss was to follow. Charles's father separated from his mother, and they eventually divorced. Jesse abandoned his children altogether. Lula tried to replace Jesse, but after two failed marriages, she felt discouraged. In 1945, Lula and Charles, then 16, moved to the city of St. Joseph. Lula was on her third marriage. When Charles turned 18, he obtained employment for the first time, following a recognizable pattern among serial killers. His employment history was checkered by frequent resignations and terminations and a general feeling of dissatisfaction with the nature of the work and the conditions of his work environment. His first job was at a bowling alley, When that didn't pan out, he began driving truck in 1947. Many serial killers move around on a regular basis, from city to city, state to state. Driving truck gave someone like him an opportunity to get paid for their transiency. 1947 was the same year when Hatcher embarked on his career in crime. He started big, He stole a truck from his employer. He returned it. He was intoxicated upon arrival. He was fired and received criminal charges, though he received a suspended sentence. 1948. Hatcher's employment history demonstrated his tendency toward instability and his struggle with long-term commitment. Serial killers are antisocial by nature and struggle to abide by society's expectations and rules. It would only follow that they would chafe against the rigid structure and professional code of a conventional workplace. He washed dishes at a hospital while people were being treated as victims of violence elsewhere in the building. A few days after landing this job, He was arrested for auto theft once again because of his record of having committed this type of offense before. He did time in the can with his pending release scheduled for 1949. A few months later, Charles was incarcerated on charges of forgery a check he used in an attempt to buy gasoline at a filling station in Missouri. This got him three years at Conn College. 1952, Charles escaped from prison. He tried his hand at burglary during the short spate of freedom he enjoyed. He was no Andy Dufresne. He was arrested almost immediately and wound up serving another two years. Ultimately, he had more balls than brains. February 1955. Having been released from jail, Charlie Hatcher took it upon himself to steal yet another car. This time he was slapped with four years. He tried to escape again. He failed and received another two-year sentence. March 1959, Hatcher was released from the sixth term. No longer satisfied with theft and forgery, he would now advance from stealing inanimate objects to misappropriating the living. Stephen Pelham, a newspaper boy, was abducted by Charlie Hatcher at the age of 16. Hatcher brandished a large butcher knife as a means to threaten and intimidate the boy. Pelham's life was spared, and Hatcher was arrested while he fled the scene in a stolen truck. One thing Hatcher did to evade arrest was change his name. He went by many different aliases throughout his life as a criminal— Police would think they were investigating several different criminals, and meanwhile they were all pursuing the same offender. Charlie Hatcher was an amalgam. Nevertheless, he received a five-year sentence for auto theft and for the abduction of Stephen Pelham. It didn't help that the state of Missouri enacted the Habitual Criminal Act, and Charlie Hatcher was very much a habitual criminal. He escaped a day after his first 24 hours of confinement. That is, he attempted to escape. On November 25, 1959, he was transferred to Missouri State Penitentiary. Charlie Hatcher had a new ambition as a criminal. He wanted notoriety. It was his aim to become one of the most wanted criminals in the northwest region of Missouri. He intended to emulate Jesse James. July 2nd, 1961. Prison staff found inmate Jerry Therrington on the loading dock of the kitchen. He was unresponsive. He had been brutally raped and stabbed multiple times. Prison authorities were not 100% certain, but they felt strongly that Charlie Hatcher was responsible for this murder. It was presumed to be his first murder. Hatcher worked as part of the kitchen crew and was conspicuously absent when Therrington's lifeless body was discovered. Since there was no solid evidence linking Hatcher to the crime, he was never charged, He was still the prime suspect, however, and he was placed in solitary confinement. During his time in solitary, Hatcher requested psychiatric treatment. He was evaluated by the prison's psychologist, who quickly deduced that Hatcher's agenda was to use his willingness to be treated as a ploy to get out of solitary. Psychologists psychologist also suspected that Hatcher was fixing to escape from the facility. Drawing on the doctor's report, the authorities refused to grant him treatment. August 24, 1963. Charlie Hatcher was released. Charlie Hatcher's life was relatively quiet for a few years. However, in August 1969, he confessed to abducting a 12-year-old boy in Antioch, California. He persuaded the boy to accompany him to a creek nearby. Assured that there were no witnesses, Hatcher strangled the boy. There is a term used by law enforcement when they are searching for multiple offenders who are really the same criminal using several pseudonyms. The term is linkage blindness. Among the many names Charlie Hatcher used to avoid detention were Richard Martin Clark, Richard Lee Price, Albert Ayer, Richard Harris, Hobart Prater, Doris Mullins, Ronald Springer, Carl L. Kalebau, Charles Marvin Tidwell, Richard Lee Grady, Earl L. Kalebaugh, Dwayne Lee Wilfong, Albert Ralph Price, and Doris Mullins Travis. He also used six different social security numbers. He was certainly going to need them. Two days after killing a man named William Freeman on August 29th, he kidnapped a Latino boy in San Francisco. The boy was six years old and had been playing with a girl his age when the abduction took place. The girl reported the incident. According to the girl, the man offered ice cream to the boy to entice him to leave with him. This method of persuasion worked. Hatcher brought the boy to a location that was fairly deserted. He beat and sodomized the boy. Fortunately for the child, a man happened to come along while walking his dog and intervened on the boy's behalf. Police were soon contacted and, given the intel they received in terms of the descriptions given by the victim and the witness, Hatcher was soon taken into custody. At the station, Hatcher refused to answer any of the questions that were posed to him. He told them his name was Albert Ralph Price. The identification found on his person by police indicated his name was Hobert Prater. With some assistance from the FBI, they eventually ascertained that the offender on the premises was Charles Ray Hatcher. He was charged with attempted sodomy, assault, and kidnapping psychiatric assessments were ordered to determine if he was fit to stand trial throughout his assessment during his first tour in the california state hospital he was largely unresponsive like the indian in one flew over the cuckoo's nest and like the indian he was faking it when he did speak he claimed to experience delusions and to hear voices. He even admitted to being a pedophile. He came across as confused and made a few suicide attempts. He wasn't fooling anybody. He was deemed fit to stand trial. However, a second evaluation was ordered, and in 1971, a second psychiatrist diagnosed him as mentally ill and incompetent inpatient psychiatric care was recommended. May 1971, Charles Hatcher finally stood trial. He entered a not guilty plea by reason of insanity. The court requested more evaluations of his mental health, which were to take place at yet another facility. The staff at that institution concluded that Hatcher was unfit to stand trial. June. Hatcher escaped from the hospital. He was found by law enforcement a week later in Colusa, California. He was going by the name of Richard Lee Grady. He was charged with auto theft. April 1972. The staff of the psychiatric hospital decided that treatment for Hatcher was ineffective and that he must be transferred out of the hospital because he posed a danger to the other patients. Charlie Hatcher was transferred to San Quentin State Prison. Hatcher wrote to the public defender that he was fit to stand trial, a claim supported by psychiatric staff. December 1972, Hatcher stood trial for the abduction and molestation of Gilbert Martinez. The charges were supported by evidence, and he was convicted. In January, the California State Hospital admitted Charles Hatcher as a sex offender with a mental disorder. March 1973, Hatcher was caught in a cooler in the courtyard of the hospital. He had two sheets stuffed in his pants. He admitted to doctors that he intended to escape. They became convinced that he posed a threat to the public. They sent him for sentencing to the court. He was sentenced to one year in prison and served in a medium security facility in Vacaville, California. One psychiatrist diagnosed him as an institutionalized manipulative sociopath. The doctor recommended that he be transferred to a maximum security facility. Hatcher reacted to this recommendation by slashing his wrists. 1975. Charlie Hatcher was up for parole. Members of the staff put in a good word for him, pointing out that he was a reliable worker who had not been running afoul of prison policy. He did not make parole. The following year, Hatcher was up for parole once again, and authorities noted that he had shown more signs of improvement in his behavior. He had been incarcerated for two years and seven months by this point due to a new bill that allowed inmates to be released early due to time already served prior to the date of their conviction. Hatcher was released in January 1977. As per the conditions of his parole, he had to report to a halfway house every night and take medication to curb the complications of his mental illness. Hatcher escaped these conditions, rendering himself a parolee at large. May 1978, four-year-old Eric Christian, a resident of St. Joseph, Missouri, was kidnapped and murdered. It greatly disturbed the community, not just because of the horrific nature of the crime, but also because it was a safe and quiet township where crime seldom exceeded the level of stolen bikes and other youthful mischief and property crime. Charlie Hatcher went on the lam after committing this atrocity and was caught three months after the fact in September in Omaha, Nebraska. They nabbed him after he was reported for having raped a 16-year-old boy. Between 1978 and 1982, Charlie Hatcher was in and out of jail. Offenses included molesting a teenage boy, attempting to stab a seven-year-old boy, fighting a young man over payment for sex. Nothing could derail Charlie Hatcher from committing these crimes. Indeed, he was unstoppable, like a freight train. He committed attempted murder in Des Moines and tried to molest another man in Lincoln. He kidnapped an 11-year-old boy in Iowa. He spent some time locked up in the Douglas County Mental Hospital in Omaha after one of his sex crimes in 1978. He identified as Richard Clark when he was arrested, so the police did not realize he was Charlie Hatcher. It didn't help that he had never been fingerprinted. In 1979, a man named Melvin Reynolds was falsely accused of the murder of Eric Christian. Such a thing can happen when an entire community is putting pressure on the police to arrest someone for something as heinous as a violent attack on a child. Reynolds was even convicted for the offense. The story of how Eric Christian came to be abducted. One day, his babysitter left him outside a shop so she could buy a flag. When she came out, he was gone. Initial speculation had it that the kidnapper would demand a ransom. Eric's family were a prosperous, white-collar clan. No demand for ransom was issued, though. The Christians offered a $10,000 reward for information regarding Eric's whereabouts. No one came forward. They were soon to learn that the kidnapper could not be bought. For a search party found Eric's remains in a thicket of weeds next to a riverbank. The boy had been viciously sodomized, raped with bloodstains around his rectum. The cause of death was asphyxiation. As previously noted, St. Joseph is a small and tranquil community where very little of note happens, let alone the rape and murder of a small child. Not one of their citizens was unaffected by the tragedy. Eric's funeral was among the most well-attended in the town's history. Marvin Lee Reynolds was arrested because he happened to be close to the store at the time of the abduction. Though it was hardly relevant to this particular case, Reynolds had a criminal history that included indecent exposure. He was a known homosexual who had trouble holding down a job and did not finish school. A year before Eric's disappearance, the state hospital diagnosed him as a mentally retarded person. Under questioning by police, even during a polygraph examination, Reynolds denied committing the murder. But at one point he said, I'll say so if you want me to. He was not arrested at that point, but he was questioned numerous times over the next two months. He wound up volunteering details that would incriminate him. He later said the questioning process was so stressful and relentless that he would have said anything to get the investigator's office back. He confessed to the murder after nine months of hours-long interrogation <laughs> sessions. His confession was inputted in triplicate, on paper, verbally, and on audio tape. He even went with police to the spot where Eric's body was found. Like everybody else in town, he found out through the local media where Eric's remains were discovered. But because he hadn't done him in himself, he indicated to police a spot that was located several feet away. Melvin Reynolds was given a life sentence, and some of the detectives who worked the case received promotions. Well, Charlie Hatcher, Eric Christian's real killer, walked the streets a free man. He didn't remain free for long, not after he assaulted and attempted to kill seven-year-old Thomas Morton. The authorities dropped the charges— He was sent to a mental health care facility to which he had never been. May 1980, Charlie Hatcher was released from the psychiatric hospital. He was arrested and brought back to the facility after being charged with assault. September, Charlie Hatcher escaped from the Norfolk Regional Center. In October, he was arrested under the name Richard Clark for charges of sodomy and attempted assault on a teenage boy. After 21 days, Hatcher was released in January 1981. Richard Clark was arrested again. He got into a knife fight in Des Moines, Iowa. He spent more time in mental hospitals, He was discharged in April that year and was housed in a Salvation Army shelter in Davenport, Iowa. June 1981. I've lost count of how many times the legal and psychiatric authorities failed the American public when it came to Charlie Hatcher. But it was at this time that Charlie Hatcher committed his fourth murder. This time he killed an adult, 34-year-old James L. Churchill of Rock Island, Illinois, another corpse left alongside a riverbank. Police were unable to ascertain who the perpetrator was, and it was only after Hatcher confessed when they finally solved the case. That would have to wait. He explained that he had been incarcerated And his homicidal impulses got the better of him. In other words, he couldn't wait to kill. He stabbed Churchill 12 times within the vicinity of his heart. He left the knife impaled in the man's chest. Hatcher confessed to the FBI that he committed 14 murders in the Midwest. July 1981. Hatcher was arrested for the attempted kidnapping of an 11-year-old boy in a grocery store. It was his birthday, and the boy was his idea of a present. The charges were dropped, and he was sent to a psych ward in Mount Pleasant, Iowa. Due to linkage blindness, Hatcher was released. Having adopted the identity of Richard Clark, Hatcher added another layer of subterfuge by posing as a department store security guard. He forced a boy to the back of the store. The boys struggled, and because they were outdoors, a police officer driving by happened to witness the scuffle, and he separated the two and detained Hatcher. Hatcher had pre-cut lengths of rope with him and a fake security identification badge bearing the name of... Richard Clark. Because police didn't know he was Charles Hatcher, he was released, due in part to his never having been fingerprinted. The authorities unleashed a monster. He murdered two more children, a four-year-old boy and an 11-year-old girl. The St. Joseph Police Department finally took Hatcher's prints. He was identified as the perpetrator of several killings. Hatcher had been staying in another hospital, but was released on May 7, 1982. He came to the attention of the police two months later when he harassed a young woman named Stephanie Ritchie. He accosted her in a shopping mall in downtown St. Joseph. He asked her to join him for a cup of coffee. She felt uncomfortable in his presence. It was one of those moments when your intuition speaks with a megaphone. This was obviously a creep, and she didn't need to get to know him over a cup of joe to figure that out. Needless to say, they went their separate ways. July 29, 1984 There was an attempted kidnapping of 10 year old Carrie Heiss. The perp made a grab for him in a record store in a shopping mall. The man claimed to be a security guard. He grabbed him, but Carrie managed to break free from his clutches. Charlie Hatcher managed to flee before police could arrive. On the same day, he attempted to abduct Carrie Heiss. Charlie Hatcher zeroed in on another victim, 11 year old Michelle Steele. She went to her dentist and never returned home. Her mother filed a missing persons report with the police. A group of hikers discovered the remains of Michelle Steele. She was nude and presented with signs of foul play. Indeed, she had been beaten with brutality cause of death was ruled to be strangulation. She was found lying among some logs. The location was within the vicinity of where Eric Christian was found. The same day, Hatcher checked himself into the state hospital under the name Richard Clark. Charles Hatcher was charged with the murder of Michelle Steele On August 3rd, 1982, he was charged with first-degree murder. His bond was fixed at $250,000. There was a long trail of evidentiary breadcrumbs that led to Hatcher, and he was about to face the music for all his crimes. For instance, teeth marks found in Michelle Steele's flesh were a match for his. He had also left fingerprints on the personal belongings of his victims. August 13, 1982. The trial for the murder of Michelle Steele was pending. Hatcher underwent yet another psychiatric evaluation. The doctors determined that he understood the charges that were levied at him, but they still referred him to another psychiatric facility. There was a hearing on May 3rd, 1983. Charles Hatcher was formally charged with the first-degree murder of Michelle Steele. A trial date was fixed for August 22nd, 1983. Hatcher wrote a lengthy document confessing to the crimes he committed. They were described in graphic detail and he even drew maps to the locations of unfound bodies. Hatcher's motivation in writing this affidavit was as a bargaining chip he could use to avoid receiving the death penalty. August 13, 1983. Charles Hatcher was sentenced to life in prison in Missouri State. This was a punishment for Eric Christian's murder. On that same day, Melvin Reynolds was freed from prison after serving three years. Another trial was planned for January 9, 1984, but Hatcher's attorney found his conduct so abusive that they dropped the case. The venue changed to Warrensburg, Kansas, and was scheduled for September 1984. September 22nd, Charles Hatcher was convicted for the first-degree murder of Michelle Steele. He was convicted for capital murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. He was given 50 years without the possibility of parole. December 7th, 1984. The prison guards were going about their rounds at night, checking with their flashlights to ensure every inmate was present. Charlie Hatcher had escaped. He hadn't left his cell. Security precautions prevented that from happening after the long history of escaping. No, he escaped this mortal coil by hanging himself with electrical wires. His brother refused to take responsibility for Charlie's remains and personal effects. And who could blame him? Charles Ray Hatcher. Another turd that flushed himself out. This episode was written by Morgan Rector and Misdemeanor. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.